Hello, I'm Junius Williams, your host on Everything's Political. And we're back with another very exciting topic under the general umbrella of everything we talk about is political. But this subtopic is where's the money? Now, a lot of people say, where is the money? And I've had to correct them because that's not how we roll here. We say, where's the money? And today, we got a particular topic that I think is going to be very enjoyable for everybody to listen to as well as educational. And I just want to remind you, we know that there's nothing more political than money, but that's the province of the big guys. But what we're here to talk about in this third series of episodes is what can we do with a little money to make a big difference in the community? So we've got people here who are experts at that, and you're going to see more and more as we go forward. But today, I'm very happy to be joined by right here from Newark, Tobias Fox, who is the managing director and founder of Newark Science and Sustainability, Inc. And from Vieques, Puerto Rico, we have Pamela Gonzalez. She is an attorney, a board-certified massage therapist, and she's board president of Isla Nena Composta, which is fighting for food and health on the small island of Vieques. And of course, I'm joined by my co-host, Francesca Larson from Mosaic Strategies. And today we're going to talk about food sovereignty. What can people do in black and brown communities to feed themselves in a period of food scarcity? How do they get the money to pay for the development and maintenance of self-developed farms, gardens, in the inner cities, and in the rural areas. So welcome, everybody. So we're going to first begin talking to Pamela Gonzalez. You've got a lot of things going on there, Pamela. <laughs> yes. Sound like my kind of lawyer. <laughs> Where do you practice law? In Vieques, Puerto Rico, we are a small island off the east coast of the archipelago of Puerto Rico. I've been here since 2000, end of 2016, so right before the impact of Hurricane Maria in 2017. And ever since, I've gotten more and more involved with causes here and uh, different groups, and it's been a wonderful journey kind of uh, stepping up and advocating for all the issues like better transportation, better health, better um, food. <laughs> and uh, so it's led me to connect with other wonderful people here that are working towards the same goals of social justice and human rights. Where were you before you came to Vieques? Okay, so I grew up here in Vieques. I did all my primary and secondary schooling here. And then I went to the United States to study in university. So I graduated college from a Franciscan university, University of St. Francis. 
in Illinois, and I continued on to law school, graduating in 2001 with my Juris Doctor from that school. And then I worked in Chicago as a city corporation council. It was called at the time. I worked for the city of Chicago as a land use litigation attorney, where we prosecuted building code violations, health code violations, and also appeals on behalf of the city. And then I worked with a small firm also in the Mexican community, doing more of a defense defense of multiple cases, both civil and criminal, a little bit of everything, family law. And then moved back to Puerto Rico in 2004 and then worked in San Juan, mostly in construction law and contract disputes before moving back to Vieques. Boy, that's quite a journey. <laughs> I've been to Vieques. And that's how I met you through my friend Mirna. Pagan, and uh, we were just talking about Mirna, who's uh, an octogenarian who goes swimming in the Caribbean just about every day with her big dog, Fluffy. And uh, I'm very impressed with the kind of independence. Young people like yourself go away and you come back. You come together with other people or maybe by yourself to a great extent. And you put together these combination of activities to make a living. I could have had you on another section, too, called How You Make a Living. But I'm glad I have you here talking about food, so we'll get into that. How do you make a living in Vieques? Well, part-time as a massage therapist and part-time working as a lawyer. Although the population here, most of the population I serve is mostly, you know, underserved and and humble. So I basically just live off of my savings and then the money that I, the income that I can produce in those two disciplines. But I find that when you have your heart and you are giving, you always receive. So it's like Mm. there's abundance in your life, even if you have you know, what by other standards is less. And so it's just a, a mindset as long as we have the basics, which is health. And and that's something that we really need to work on in this island. There's a, we've been suffering from military contamination and lack of proper health services. So I think that I make it work. It, it happens. <laughs> the military bombed Vieques for yeah. years. And, yes. Uh, I came to Vieques because I wanted to talk to people like Mierna who were standing in the fore, so to speak. They went out there and eventually they stopped the people from bombing, the military from bombing. And one of the things I found out when I got there is that you have no hospital on the little island on Isla Nena. So if you get sick, you got to go over to the big island. Right. Yes. Ever since Hurricane Maria, the one uh, health services facility, if you want to call it that, because, I mean, we used to call it a hospital, but it was mostly just like a, a small clinic. It was shut down due to mold and it was deemed that it was unfit to be reopened. So it's been closed ever since and we don't have a hospital. It's being 
built with FEMA funds in the, we don't know how long it's going to take, but yes, it's hard to have access to specialists on the island. And if there's an emergency, it's a hundred percent of the time they have to fly you over to Puerto Rico to get immediate care, emergency care. So in that context, you are the board president of Isla Nena Composta, and you're fighting for food as well as health care. So tell me about the food aspect of that. What do you do? Okay, so Isla Nena is a very small community-based organization run by an all-female board. There's five of us and the executive director. And we run this community compost deposit where people bring their vegetation material from yard trimmings and other organic sources like cardboard. And we turn it into compost that we in turn finally sift and package and sell. And that's how we get our money for the operations of the organization. But we also want to support local farmers with this compost and also use it for restoration of the habitats here, the waterways that have been dried up over the years from a variety of reasons. But we want to improve the water cycle in the island because we suffer from very extreme droughts and dry periods. And so by increasing water, we also hope to improve the food in the island And we encourage people to have their own home gardens and community gardens and to educate about composting and the food cycle so that we can keep that people from dumping otherwise organic material into the landfill, which is already near the end of its useful life. And we want to kind of save the what's organic for food and for proper uses. So when we talk about food sovereignty, we're talking about a whole lot of other things that go into making that possible, just from what you're saying. That's right. I'm learning. And obviously, water and food are essential. And Puerto Rico, the main island, imports more than 80% of the food it consumes. Sadly, because of industrialization in the 19th century, there was a... Uh, people moved into more industrial work instead of encouraging farming. And so now we are stuck with having to import food. And when it reaches Vieques, it's even less alive. And then it ends with people eating a lot of processed foods, packaged foods that have a shelf life instead of real rich, nutrient rich food. So we really need, it's not an option. We have to grow our own food. And that's the answer to the question of how we get food is we have to harvest the rain water and we have to plant local traditional seeds that I know I'm probably jumping ahead, but those are the two ways that we can have access to food in times of food shortages and scarcity. I learned from uh, my friend, now deceased, Professor Jan Carew, that Puerto Rico could have three growing seasons of rice. It's just that kind of climate and the soil is just that kind of soil. In other words, Puerto Ricans could be food 
sufficient on one of the things that people call staples. So what happened to that? It's complicated road that has gotten us here. Um, colonialism is partly also immigration to, you know, we are now undergoing a second wave of people migrating out of the island because of the devastation and the disaster that we have politically with the debt reorganization that's been so painful for so many families losing pensions and cost of living being so high. So there's also this idea that they try to say that it was not a good thing to be a farmer, to be a peasant, to live in the country. You have to be going to the cities and having an office job. So it's really a return to our roots. And, you know, our Taino Indians were self-sovereign and sustainable and, and knew how to grow and be in, in harmony with the practices that allowed the soil to produce. So I think that that's happening already. A lot of the younger generations are taking up farming again and not just one crop. You know, we have to think of permaculture and indigenous practices to protect the planet, protect the earth as we gain from it food and sustenance. So what can you grow in Vieques? A lot of things. We can grow lots of tropical fruits like papayas, bananas, mangoes, avocados, lemon, and all the citrus. We have a good soil for arugula and other greens. We can um, peppers and hot peppers and coconuts and local fruits. We also have a good climate for root vegetables like um sweet potatoes and yucca and a lot of beans as well. We have good soil for pigeon peas, which is our traditional gandules that we eat with rice. And uh, I mean, just year long, we can have different crops going, pumpkins and squash and sunflowers. And I mean, very diverse, very diverse. Does that sound good, Tobias? It sounds awesome. And I didn't know this much about Puerto Rico. I've been in Puerto Rico once in my life, 2010. I went to the countryside, but I didn't know it was uh, so rich in agriculture. So this is this is awesome. This is amazing. So I've, uh, I've expanded my uh, global outreach into uh, the Dominican Republic. So I have a, a nonprofit organization in the mountainous town called Constanza, Dominican Republic. I also serve as a uh, mentor to some young farmers in Ghana and Uganda and uh, establish some very healthy relationships with folks in, in Guatemala. So it's really uh, exciting to hear this about Puerto Rico. Well, tell us, what is it that you are doing in Newark that can be exported to some of these places? <laughs> well, we would love to help and, and collaborate with these farmers in a lot of these places that have ac more access to land than we do. So the question would be reverse, you know, and the cultural exchange would be what can we bring to Puerto Rico and other countries and communities outside of our borders, if you will. But um, what programming and training can we bring there? Because they have the land to grow in abundance. The amount of produce that we grow here on a much smaller scale, they can grow it in abundance. And then that could be a huge benefit 
to the work that I'm doing here in Newark. And so for me, we, for the most part, transform vacant lots into community gardens or urban farms. And so this is like large enough to build one or two houses on. It's not acres of land that we're growing on. And so we've learned and mastered the art of cultivating agriculture in condensed spaces, rooftops, indoors, through uh, retrofitting uh, factories, through hydroponics, aquaponics. But when I visit places like, you know, Guatemala and Dominican Republic, and I see so much land that they have access to and that they can grow on, it, it amazes me, you know. And so what I would, I would love to build more and, and work more and learn more about the work that's being done in, in Puerto Rico and see how we can have this cultural, um, agricultural exchange as well. So how do you get the land in Newark? And tell us some of those big words you were using, like aquaponics and hydroponics. Tell us what all of that means. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so aquaponics, hydroponics, both water-based agricultural techniques. Aquaponics is uh, having a, um, a symbiotic relationship between plants and mostly fish. And so the fish wastes provide the nutrients for the plants to grow. Uh, and then there's aeroponics, where there is, again, a nutrient mix, where this is a mist that comes out and spray the roots, where you don't use as much water as you would use in hydroponics, where in hydroponics, you have the roots sitting in a nutrient water mix. And so this is all water-based indoor farming practices that helps with combating climate change or lack of access to land use. And so these are great techniques, mostly you'll find in industrial or urban environments where you don't have so much access to large amounts of land. And so for me, I forget the first part of that question. <laughs> How do you get the land? Oh, yeah. So that makes you Newark a unique place to grow in because Newark and a very few cities in New Jersey have a program which they call an adopt-a-lot program, where you can adopt a vacant lot for $1, you sign a lease for the year with a purpose of transforming that vacant lot into some type of community green space. And so you have some towns, cities, boroughs throughout New Jersey that are so concrete and so industrial and so condensed in its population that there is no access to vacant lots. And so that puts Newark in a unique place. And so I've been involved in this work for about 10 years. I started in 2012. I didn't know anything about agriculture. I don't come from an agricultural background. My father was a brick mason. My mother worked in the um, medical field. But I grew up in East Orange. I was born in Newark, grew up in East Orange, and I grew up in a household of 16. And so I experienced every issue related to poverty and food insecurity was at the top of that list. And so when I got the opportunity to participate in the city of Newark's Adopt-A-Lot program, the idea of just being able to grow your own food fascinated. And I thought that was just so liberating and powerful. And so I participated without having knowledge about how to cultivate the land, didn't know the benefit of soil and how soil is a living organism and how we treat that soil. And so these things became very important to me. So yeah, you, the downfall about the adopt a lot program is that there's no safety net in the land itself. 
right? Because you don't own the land. It's only an annual lease and there's no guarantee that you will have access to that land the following year. And so now we're looking at ways of how do we have long-term land tenureship? I mean, that's the issue. Who's involved in I want to know more about that because one of the things that keeps coming up in these conversations is how does it scale and how does it remain sustainable? So if you don't have access to the land permanently right now, how much of your work, Tobias, is in figuring out those longer term commitments about making sure this is a resource that's available? Oh, absolutely. So I've been, again, so I'm heavily involved in policy groups, committees, doing a lot of um, talks around the state about this topic because it's important and it's serious. And so I'm the first one. So I'm not only am I the uh, founder and managing director of Newark Science and Sustainability, Inc., I'm also the founder and lead facilitator of the Newark Community Food System, which consists of about 20 local growers like myself, 20 growers like myself within the city of Newark. And I'm the first one in our network that has transitioned from leaseholder to land owner. And so I've been convinced that this is one of the ways to protect the long-term sustainability of our green spaces is by owning the land. And so another option people are exploring now is land trust, where there's a land trust organization that purchases a large amount of land, and then they hold that land for agricultural development. And so the approach that I took allowed, because I received some funding in 2018, it allowed me to write a proposal, submit that proposal to the city of North's economic housing and development department, asking to purchase the land for the purpose of redeveloping it into a year-round sustainable urban farm. And so this takes us beyond the concept of having some raised beds in the lot, but now installing permanent infrastructure, like a greenhouse, commercial kitchen, a meeting place or enclosed facility with restrooms, a weekly farm stand. So this language came out in the proposal, and then it allowed me to purchase the properties. We were operating on two vacant lots adjacent to each other, purchase these properties at a discounted nonprofit rate. So that's very important. And so the land became affordable for us. But then The challenge was now we have to redevelop it to what we're going to say we're going to do. And then that became a challenge because we didn't realize how expensive permits are and construction costs are. We're not developers. You know, we're land stewards. We're agriculturalists, farmers. And so now, you know, now my argument is we need to develop this community green development component or sector if you will, that kind of bring down the cost of permit fees and construction costs to make these agricultural development, community agricultural development initiatives more affordable. So that way, addressing the huge problem with regards to food deserts, lack of healthy food access. Again, I grew up in a household of 16. I know clearly what it feels like to go to bed hungry night after night. And so I know what health disparities look like. I was a healthcare organizer for five years throughout the city of Newark, where I organized residents throughout their healthcare disparities. Uh, and so not having access to fresh, healthy food speaks to a lot of, a lot of our social ills 
And we can address that, but we have to do it smartly. We have to do it economically and do it in a far more sustainable way than we're doing it now. But Pamela, how do you get the land in Vieques to do what you're doing? For Isla Nena Composta, we have a memorandum of understanding. We have an agreement with the national, United States National Wildlife Refuge, which holds uh, the majority of the land that was used by the U.S. Navy. And after the Navy stopped bombing the island and retreated, then the United States government transferred ownership of that land to another United States agency, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife And they allow us to have some area there where we can run the compost, have people uh, deposit their material, we turn it into compost, and we there do our composting operation. But we are not the owners of that land, and we are at the mercy of renewing that contract year to year. And the farmers in this island, so two-thirds of of Vieques were outside of Vieques control for 60 years. And now it's just, we're still demanding the land to go back to the people of Vieques. And agricultural land is very difficult to access. And land in general in Vieques and Puerto Rico is not affordable. With this uh, Puerto Rico becoming a tax incentive, uh, a fiscal paradise, there's been a lot of uh, people buying land here from other places, United States and other rich people. And that has turned into it being unaffordable for people to buy those homes that they sell, you know, so gentrification. But in addition to that, like, for instance, my friends who have a farm, they had to enter into a lease with the Puerto Rico Land Authority. And those leases are very expensive. The rent is very expensive plus what Tobias was saying with permits to construct, insurances. It makes it so that a farmer cannot live off of just what they sell on a farm stand. They need grants and other sources of funding to be able to sustain. And in in Puerto Rico, in Vieques here, what they're doing is helping each other. The small agriculturists are creating brigades where they go and help each other and rotate on a schedule. They share tools, they share seeds, they help each other sell their produce. And that's how they are able to manage. And then being very creative with cutting costs down. So we are also exploring how can we enter into land trusts or other legal means where we own the, not, you know, where we have title to the land collectively because nobody owns the land. The land is is there. But it is this private model of individual titles to lots. We have to move from that to how can we collectively protect and be good stewards. Like Tobias was saying, I love that term, land stewards. And, and protect it for future generations and for health, for our own food and sustenance. One of the questions that comes up, because these conversations are frequently a place of learning for others around the country, is who needs to be at that table with you all in these conversations? It's the folks who you're working with, but I've heard some mentions of policy. Are there government officials that need to be at the table? Are there corporate partners that you've had to have at the table? 
What does that look like? Who has needed to be in those conversations with you to move this forward? And I'd ask that, Pamela, to you, but also to Tobias. It may be similar and maybe different. I would say definitely policymakers. And we need to be in those chairs. The community needs to have more power in decision-making spaces, but also individuals like corporations. I mean, we're all living in the same space, so we have to do something together. It's the same with climate change. It just takes all of us to take a hard look at our circumstances and think of the next generations, not just right now and the individual gain, but what's best for our future as a race, as a people. That's right. We do need to be in those seats. Tobias, what about you? What about Nork? Who have you needed at the table with you? Yeah, well, this is an interdisciplinary, we have to take an interdisciplinary approach to these real world problems. And so we can't exclude policymakers because policy definitely shape and guide <laughs> the way we live for the most part. But um, in addition to policymakers, we need the agriculturalists that are on the ground that's doing this work, of course. We need architects, engineers. We need institutions. It's just a wide range of people we need to kind of have, have at this table because it affects, you know, agriculture not only affects the wellness of a community, but also it affects our economy and every aspect of our social life. And so we need a diverse group of people to be at this table. And so I'm in circles with Rutgers as they're trying to create a language that defines urban agriculture and how urban agriculture is impacted and what resources is needed to sustain and expand. That's Rutgers University. That's correct. And I'm also in committees with environmental justice advocates. And so it just takes a wide range of people to really begin to, one, identify what the problems are with regards to healthy food access, and recognize what solutions currently exist that need to be supported. And so again, I am just one of 20 in my local network and then see how we can start to move needles forward uh, with beginning to make some really systemic changes in our society. I was going to add, yes, that academics, so university professors and university students can take a big part and help us like in planning, professional planners to community planners to help us know which areas can be sustainably developed for tourism, but also to protect land for housing, which is so important, and also agriculture. Who are you in competition with, both of you? Starting with you, Pamela. I might add that uh, going through Vieques with Mirna, she showed me some of that land. One of the things I have just been overwhelmed with is two, two groups of living things in Vieques. Number one is horses, and number two is chickens. I never saw more horses in my life on an island. I thought I was in Arizona or New Mexico or somewhere, and I've never seen so many chickens. They're just out there, <laughs> just reproducing. How'd y'all get like that? But anyway, that's on the side. <laughs> Who else wants that land in Vieques? Oh, the um, the people trying to construct mega hotels and like large 
Airbnbs too, you know, people turning homes into short-term rentals. That's their biggest competition right now. They want access to the best land, the coastal resources, the beaches, which are public and should be for all of us. So we're in competition with privatizers who want to create gated or small enclaves where they can be away from the regular population and just have a place to relax and have paradise without considering the impact on, um, because it's not producing very good jobs for the local population. So right now, that's the, one of the main threats to access to land is uh, huge developments for tourism that doesn't take into consideration the history, the the needs of the people who live here on a permanent basis. And in Newark, who are you in competition with? Well, I would say we are in uh, direct competition with outdated, irrelevant policy. And this was, is preventing the expansion of urban agriculture, specifically community urban agriculture. And I keep stressing on the word community because it's the work that I do where we combine healthy food access with community education, programming, training. And so, yeah, and so when you are developing an urban farm and you are treated in the same fashion as building a, you know, three-story house or commercial structure, that's a problem. That's a problem because then you're creating even more barriers to address a serious issue in your community. How many actual people have benefited from the food grown that you two have something to do with producing? Well, that's a that's a good fair question to ask. I thought so. <laughs> I mean, so we we run a farm table co-op, which is um, it mirrors a community supported agriculture program where you know every year since 2018 we've been supporting 20 local families within that's within our capacity right and so every year 20 families for 20 weeks come and pick up a produce package from us this feeds two to four members in the family we recently received grant funding from the city of north that we are really excited about that allows us to expand from 20 families this year to in 2023 uh, we'll be going up to 100 families in addition to that we've been cultivating green spaces, maintaining two to three community gardens or urban farms, as some people describe them, that not only feed these 20 families, but also the residents that live within these uh, gardens slash urban farms as well. But it's not just us. Again, you know, if you look at the entire network, we're feeding neighborhoods, communities. I'm just one of 20 within our network, and each of us have different capacities what we can hold in our space and how much we can cultivate, produce, and distribute as well. And we're doing this. Now, I worked from 2012 to December of 2016. While developing my organization, I had to also work a full-time job to invest in my organization because I just wasn't getting the funding support and I had to figure out a solution for myself. And so thankfully, since 2017, a lot of that has changed drastically. I'm so thankful for that. But it just goes to show how far I've come in addition to 
where others in my network are still at, you know. And so, uh, so I'm hoping to be this kind of a billboard, if I can be, of what urban agriculture looks like and the Im- impact it makes if it's supported. Because I am getting, thankfully now, some support to expand the work that I'm doing and also help others in our network as well. Well, what do the people do to earn these packages? Are you, do you expect them to become farmers? Or what do they do? They do nothing. No, that's a good question. There's some programs like this. Again, it's, again, a community-supported agriculture program. We market it as a farm-to-table co-op. Uh, and some programs have, you know, different guidelines or guiding principles. For us, it's um, wanting people to connect more where food comes from, connect more with the people responsible with growing their food. When I grew up, there was no relationship with farmers. There was no farmers in my community. It was instilled in me to have a healthy relationship with your your barber or the neighborhood grocer. And so now we are trying to change some of these thought processes in people's minds and and get people to have healthier relationships, not only with the people responsible with growing their food, but also begin to regain control of their health as well. And so drawing those connections. When, when people come to our gardens, they get a tour of the space. We tour them in, throughout the garden. We expose them to certain products and plants that they never have been exposed to. When I first started out growing food, I knew nothing about Swiss chard. Uh, and a lot of the other variety of greens that I grow until I became a farmer. My staple green growing up in a family of African descent was collards, you know, but now it's so diverse. You know. It is interesting what happens when we're able to bring our communities into these spaces too. I think that the deeper that we get into this work, it's sometimes hard to remember that other folks don't know this is going on, that there's still folks who don't know that this is going on four blocks from their house or a mile down the road, and that this is a piece of the community that they own in some ways and they have access to. So what are ways that you all are bringing, doing more to bring awareness to this? What else can we do to help bring awareness to the work that you're doing and to bring that community into the space? Well, this platform here is, is awesome. Being able to talk about it, speak about it. And, you know, this could be an audience that you reach that had no clue about me and the work that I do and given, especially uh, in Puerto Rico, you know? And so I think the more we talk about it, speak about it, and also, because I'm a big advocate of visual learning, and so, uh, and the more we can help people see the work that we're doing so they can process it from their perspective and touch and feel the work that we're doing, it helps change people's perspective a lot, tremendously. So I thank you and I, uh, I appreciate allowing me to share my story and the work that I do on this platform. Pamela, what, what do you want people to know? Wow, I agree 100% with what Tobias just said. I think that this work creates community. Here in Vieques, we are, we like to think that we're helping the entire population of about 8,000. But for instance, in the last few years, we've helped divert uh, the people bringing their organic material to the landfill. Instead, we're creating something that creates food that's healthy 
that's the fertilizer for future. And then also we have prevented green material or, you know, organic material to mix with toxic material and then intoxicating our groundwater. And so it's like little steps like that help save the environment and the environment is for all of us. We're part of that environment too. So also teaching kids to become involved with composting, to go and touch it and bag it and take it home to their mom so that they can use it in their garden and whether for flowers or for food. And then the importance of recycling, you know, we try to also, we need so desperately to improve recycling practices here in Vieques. And other initiatives, we want to develop green infrastructure and bioswales to filter water before it goes to the ocean and to have a healthier relationship to the land, like Tobias was saying. If you learn to love the soil and to be in awe of the growth process for food and and to become involved and to plant something, we have some little kids bring little sprouts for ají dulce, which is like small pepper. And they put it in the ground here and they come and water it. And so it's just that whole process of feeling connected to the earth and to each other in the process. That makes miracles. Junius, that feels like the perfect place to sum up our conversation here. I don't know if you had additional thoughts. Well, I did, but I agree with you. This has been really good. We started out and we've had some technical difficulties here. The last one on my part. So I just want to thank both of our guests for coming on and sharing. It went way beyond what I had intended. And I do think both of you have become billboards for a number of things. How we need to relate to Mother Earth. How we need to expect that people can do a lot of these things for themselves. So this has just been really good. And is there any way that people can get in touch with each of you? If you want to shout out an email address or a telephone number, now's your chance, starting with you, Pamela. Yes, so Isla Nena Composta, all together, at gmail.com is the email. And we're also on Facebook and Instagram as Isla Nena Composta. All right. Tobias, how can people get in touch with you? Tobias, can you hear? Junius, I'm going to get it from Tobias later. I can get it separately. Okay. All right. So that's it for another month. Come back and listen to all of our podcasts. I think you want to listen to all 16 episodes that we now have over two seasons. And we appreciate your feedback. A lot of people seem to be liking what we're doing. Of course, I'm going to see you in Newark, Tobias. But I'm also, you're giving me some more incentive to come back down to Vieques, family. Very good to please meet you. Please come. All right. Please come. Thank you for the opportunity. Right. Thank you. It's be- beautiful meeting you. Good to Thank meet you, everyone. too. This is Junius Williams, your host on Everything's Political. Everything's Political podcast is sponsored by the Center for Education and Juvenile Justice and supported by the Terrell Foundation and listeners like you. It is produced by Mosaic Strategies with theme music by Anthony Ant Jackson. Like what you hear? 
Subscribe to Everything's Political Podcast on Spotify and follow us on Facebook and Instagram for exclusive behind-the-scenes content.